0: Welcome to evening service. Um, Let's go ahead and open up with a word of prayer and uh, we'll get over into Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. But let's go ahead and uh, pray first and then we'll get uh, right into this. Dear Heavenly Father, again, we're just so grateful and glad just to have a a beautiful day that you've given to us today. Lord, I thank you so much for just uh, continuing to see uh, your beauty uh, even in a world, Lord, that has um, been cursed by sin, we still see how your glory comes forth in what uh, is growing and what is blossoming. And uh Lord, I'm just so thankful for that, that we get to enjoy that and we get to see your handiwork in all of these things. And Lord, I pray that we would be grateful for that and Lord, we would be very thankful for all of those things. But above all, tonight, Lord, we'd be thankful for your word. We'd be thankful for what you've given to us here to learn. And Lord, um, while it'll be a challenge and uh, there's some things in Ecclesiastes here that are challenging to our mindset and challenging to the way that we think, I pray, Lord, that we would just have that mindset that is transformed, that is focused upon doing your will, that is focused on pleasing you, And Lord, we would do so tonight by very clearly listening to what you have for us. I pray, Lord, you just be with my voice and be with uh, all of us here, that this time would be pleasing and honoring unto you, that only the things, the Lord, that uh, bring you glory, honor, and praise would be said, spoken, and done tonight. And this I ask in your Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Before we get started, turn to Romans chapter, or excuse me, not Romans, but Ezekiel. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, but I want you to turn to Romans chapter 12, because again, as I mentioned, um, there's going to be some things that challenge the way we think. Um, We'll get to Ecclesiastes here in just a second, but we we know this passage, and again, I want to use this as a reference point, because we're going to discuss some things that are really contrary to what we in this world think needs to be better. In Romans chapter 12, it makes it very clear in verse two, it says, and be not conformed to this world. Many times we have a worldly viewpoint and a worldly mindset, but it says, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It means it's a continual process. It doesn't stop. It just continues to renew day by day that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, if we turn back over to Ecclesiastes chapter seven, we know there in Romans chapter twelve, there's a lot of things that are contrary to the way the world operates. I mean, obviously, over there it talks about rendering uh uh good for evil and uh um you know not uh, turning around and uh, uh having evil for evil, but you know again uh having the mindset to do what is right and do what pleases the lord and 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 that's very clearly a different mindset than what the world has. The world has, and they're often more than willing to quote an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth without having any understanding of what that's talking about. Without having any understanding what that's talking about. But what we find here is in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, as he goes into this a bit more, talking about what is the good for our life, that he he asks that question in the last part of chapter 6. In, In chapter 7, he starts talking about those things that are better. Now again, the idea and the concept is, is that we get to this point where in the last part of chapter 12, the last two verses, he talks about, let's hear, you know, let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man. That's, that's the mindset. This is where we're going to. And I like to read that verse to begin with, because again, I want us to get that set, that, that set in our mind of how we think this thing through. How we go through this. Because there's a lot of challenges to the way we think. Now obviously in verse, uh, verse one, <coughs> we talked about this. It said a good name is better than precious ointment. And we talked about its parallel passage over there, uh, in uh, Proverbs chapter 22 verse one where it talks about, um, uh, choosing that good name. And, and we have that, uh, the, that choice. A good name is always better than anything else. A good name is always better than, than he, as he talks about here, something that has healing. Now, it's interesting as he goes through this, he kind of uses this from a physician's standpoint, from a di- medicinal purposes, because that precious ointment would do many things. Not only were we talking about ointment there uh, with the anointing, but we're also talking about a salve that would would come along and we could put on a wound that would help things heal. We, we, we do that nowadays. There are certain things that happen, and, and they put on, put on certain types of ointments and creams and gels and things of that nature. If you get a serious burn, there's this wonderful new invention that came out. I shouldn't say new. It came out several decades ago called water gel, and it helps helps with burns. It, it, it's meant to, to help protect them and heal them there are certain things that people use to to cover wounds nowadays and and technology has has really advanced to, to the preser- preservation to keep infection out and to to help clear those things up far better than what they had uh, in in the old testament but what we find here in this passage is, is he's talking about this good name i want us to understand that's how he's framing what he's about to ready to say in the next few passages next few verses all the way through, through verse 6. Now let's read those whole, this whole passage in verse 1. Good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of one's birth. <clears throat> it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for the sadness of the countenance of the, the, the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in a house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in a house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. So we see him talking about a couple of different individuals. And again, we're talking about the fool and the wise, much like what we see in the book of Proverbs. And he talks about these individuals in a very specific way. We find the the, the wise person, the wise man, the wise woman, is going to be somebody that chooses to have a good name. To have a reputation that exalts and glorifies our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Somebody that chooses otherwise to exalt themselves is that person that is the fool. It's the person that is filled with pride. It is the person that will destroy themselves. And this is why he goes through this process of saying there's some things that are better than others. Now, as we look at this list of what is better, sometimes we look at that list and we go, now, hold on a second. That doesn't seem to add up. So let's take a look at some of these things that we see here. And he's basically, what he's talking about in verse 1, he begins to expound in the next few verses all the way through chapter, or to to verse 6. But he says there in that second part, and we talked about the first part last week in in verse 1, The day of death than the day of one's birth. He's saying that when you die, it is better than when you were born. Now, somebody's going to sit there and say, well, that doesn't make much sense because you can't die unless you're born. Well, I get that. But we're talking about what is better. We're talking about what is better. When somebody is born in this life, they're born and they're going to begin making choices. Just like you get to choose which name you want. You get to choose. Everything that we have, we have a choice to make. We're, we're faced with these decisions. You know, when, when we uh, come into this life, you know, we're, we're not already condemned, but what we find is, is we find that that action of condemnation occurs when we commit sin. We condemn ourselves. You know, somebody that's just walking down the road is is totally fine and there's nothing wrong with them right up until the point of where they decide to sin and they go in and steal something from somebody's garage or steal something from somebody's house or decide to mug the person that's walking down the, the sidewalk next to them. They've then condemned themselves to whatever punishment, whatever justice is going to be found. Now, again, I understand innocent until proven guilty, but we're talking about in the eyes of God. God knows what a person has done. So there's no escaping that condemnation. And he makes that very clear. And again, in the very last verse of this this book, where he talks about God's going to reveal every secret thing. The choices that we make. You go over to 1 Corinthians 3, and he's talking about uh, uh, building on the foundation of Christ. And you get a choice, wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. We all get a choice of what we want to build with. Now, it should be obvious, but I'll tell you this. It takes a lot of hard work to to, to use gold, silver, and precious stones to build a home. It is a lot of time and investment. There's a, there, There's a lot of effort that's put into that. Could you imagine if there you are with with gold and silver and precious stones, having to build a house? You have to take that from its raw material form. I mean, with wood, it's pretty easy. You just chop down a tree, dry it out, you run it through the mill, you get yourself a couple of two by fours, and you go up there and you start framing. I make—I know it sounds—I'm making it sound a lot easier. Jacob, Jake, uh, Jake, can correct me later on that one <laughs> about how hard it is to frame. <clears throat> obviously it is hard to frame because I've been in some houses where I've lived where I'm like, these guys must have been blind and cross-eyed at the same time because I, I don't know how you get a wall that pitches like this in a hallway. It just doesn't make sense. But, you know, it's easier to work with wood. It's a lot harder when you're working with things of metal, especially if you've got to take that metal and you've got to get it out of the rock, you've got to dig it out, you've got to melt it down, you've got to purify it, you got to get to a pure form, you got to get into a usable state to be able to build and do something with it. Now the same thing is true when we go through uh, our Christian life. We have a choice of how we're going to build with our uh, with the things that God gives us. What do we do with this life? What do we do with our body? What do we do with our mindset? What do we do with our heart? What do we give it to? What do we what do we uh, allow uh, to affect us and influence us? All of these things we we come to a conclusion that there's a choice. And you go over there, and when Pharaoh begins to ask Jacob uh, um, how his life was when he's introduced by his boy Joseph, uh, he 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 says that his days in this life, uh, and I'm kind of paraphrasing it here, but he said they were filled with trouble. And I can see that. And he grew up in a in a situation where he had his brother hating him he grew up in a situation where um you know he was taking the things that uh, uh that uh, were meant for his brother his brother hated him his uh, his uh, relatives tried to double cross him when it came to a wife uh, um we've got all of these things happening and occurring and uh we see different trials and troubles and he he watches his boys make some wrong decisions uh, and, uh, um and has to correct them. He sees them, uh, doing away with Joseph and, uh, one of his beloved children and, and, and basically living his entire life thinking that his son is dead. And they'll re- only realize that, that his, his ten sons lied to his face. Could you imagine that? You know, here he is taken away as a boy, as a young man. And he doesn't see him till he's old. And his whole life, he's been thinking that his, his son was killed by a beast. And then his, his, his sons have to come to him and tell them the truth. Ah, man, that's a tough one. But what we have here is we see how that all works and how that all played to exactly what God wanted to do for the nation of Israel. So as we go through this and we begin to see what God is doing here, we begin to realize that the days of our, our, uh, th- that we live are, are very clearly can be filled with trouble. They can be filled with sorrow. And, and the mindset that we often think is that, that it's more joyous to go to, say, somebody that is, uh, uh, you know, a, if you will, uh, the birth of a child, celebrating the birth of a child, than celebrating when somebody passes away from this life. Now I'll tell you this, this passage is again, the caveat is right there with a good name is better. If a person chooses a name that is not Jesus Christ, chooses something else and chooses, if you will, to live for their own glory in their own flesh, that's not going to be a better situation. Their judgment that will come upon them is one that is an eternal punishment in a lake of fire. That's, that, that, that's, a, that's a very dangerous scenario for somebody to live this life that way. But as we're seeing here, he's talking about these, this individual that makes these right choices, the wise person over the fool. The wise is always going to be better than the fool when the wise adheres to the wisdom. Adheres to the wisdom. So what we see here is we see Solomon going through and he begins talking in verse two, talking about, you know, if you will, expounding why it's better about death. Because if a person can say, I have chosen a good name in my life and that name is Jesus Christ and I've given him all glory, honor, and praise, I've chosen the wise things of God. I've chosen to do righteous. I have chosen to do that which is good. As we've seen over and over and over again, he's talking about you know somebody that lives their days but doesn't do any good. Now we're seeing, if you will, why it's better that somebody would choose those things that are good because the day of their death is going to be something that is far more rejoicing. You know, when a saint that has lived their life for Jesus Christ and has lived to do those things to glorify their Savior passes away, they're going on to glory. There's no, there's, they're going to a place of no sin. They're going to a place where their savior, uh, they can see face to face. They, as, as, uh, Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. I mean, we, we, we look at those things and while it is somewhat sorrowful for us now, and there is a mourning process that is ascribed to us that we should do. There's still this understanding that that is a better thing. It's a better thing. What happens is sometimes we get a little selfish and we want to keep that person for ourselves. We think we know better. We think we 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 we, we deserve this. But the problem is, is when we we get into that mindset, we we're, we're thinking incorrectly. We again have to have this transformed mind. So here he is, and he begins to expound in this, and as he goes through this. <clears throat> In this passage, in verse two, he said it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. Now, now let's think about this for a second. He, he's talking about a, a very different scenario of what we in this world think is better. You know, many times people w- would much rather choose, if you will, to be have have, have a giant feast. And just enjoy everything and to just have, if you will, fun all the time. That's not life and that's not living. God never promised happiness. He gives us joy, but we can have joy and sorrow. But what we find here is we find that this individual, that the choice of dwelling in the house of mourning is a, is a mindset that is better than the one that's over there saying, hey, I'm just wanting to eat, drink, and be merry. Now look, there is nothing wrong, as we've already talked about, with enjoying what God gives us. But if that becomes our overwhelming mindset, that that's what I have to have in this life, then we don't understand life. We don't understand the nature of death and what death does. And what death is about. Let's face it. Death is a huge mystery to a lot of people, including believers, including believers. They don't understand that. You know, God gets glory in all of that. He gets glory. When we pass away. Why? Because then there is another redeemed with him in glory. I mean, this is the mindset that we have to begin to think with. Now again, we don't necessarily think that way. We always think of, we think of immediate loss. And there's, there's sorrow with that. That's why it's called the house of mourning. We go through a mourning process. We go through a mourning process. But you know what you can't do? You can't have a situation where somebody goes through and something happens such as a death in a, in, in a family, and have somebody pass away, and then turn around and say, well, you know what? We're just going to have a big, giant party. And we're going to ignore it. No, God says there is a prescribed way to go about doing this. It, it is perfectly righteous to miss that person. It is perfectly righteous to cry about it. It is perfectly righteous to experience that loss and a sadness. That's normal. That's normal. See, the world doesn't want to do that. The world wants to, the world wants to do away with anything that is bad. They want to do away with anything that is bad. You know what they wind up doing? They wind up shoving, if you will, entertainment and amusement in the face to dull the senses. And they'll use anything to dull the senses and numb it. You know, the house of mourning, when we start thinking about mourning, you know what that does? That draws us nearer to thinking about God. Think about that for a second. You think about where the person has passed on to. You think about your relationship with that person and how that has been with God at the center of the relationship. mean, you think about all of these things and it always comes back to thinking about God. Now the feasting, not always the case. Now feasting, again, everything has its time and purpose. I mean, you go over to chapter 3, and, and, he, and he starts off uh, in, in chapter 3 that we've already gone through, gone through, to everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. He says, in the very first thing, he says, there's a time to born uh, uh, and a time to die. There's a, there's a, There's a time to be happy, there's a time to be sad, there's a time to do the right things. But here he's saying, one of the key things that we have to understand is, is this issue of sorrow. See, the world wants to ignore sorrow. The world wants you to think sorrow equals bad. The world wants you to think that if you are sad, that's wrong. Because you're supposed to be eternal Joel Olstein happy. Right? You're supposed to have, I mean, even as you're facing the firing squad, you're supposed to have a smile from year to year, and you know, like a Cheshire cat. But that doesn't happen all the time. I'm pretty certain, based off of the things that Jesus Christ said on the cross, on the way to the cross, he wasn't doing it with a smile on his face, but he was doing it with joy knowing that it would bring salvation to you and me. Fulfilling the will of the Father, being obedient. Man, just that that thought process alone is very different than what we go through. It's very different than what we go through. But here he is making this very clear. He says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For that is the end of all men, and the living will lay his heart to it. Now I want us to think about this for a second when we start thinking about this passage and I want us to go over to another place go over to the book of Hebrews Hebrews chapter 9 So here's what he's getting at Here's what he's getting at <clears throat> I remember at some point in time uh very early in our um in our marriage <clears throat> um, one of um Amy's family friends um, was diagnosed with a with a brain tumor. Uh it was a very, very, very aggressive brain tumor. It was the type that is like a spider web. So you can't just go in there and pull it out. Uh it was super aggressive and um he he passed in a short time. It was a short time. And I remember we were driving up there uh to go up there and to um I can't remember whether it was the memorial service or we were going up to see him. Uh, for one of the last times, and she was going to spend some time with him. And um, I mean, he was—he was one of the—I mean, he was a kind gentleman. He was a kind gentleman. He was firm. He was one of those guys that I mean, you knew he was was firm in his beliefs. He didn't take a lot of guff, but at the same time, you knew that he had such a generous heart. And I remember that, and I remember driving up there, and I remember having this conversation with, uh, you know, it's kind of quiet in the car, and the girls are, I think, uh, I don't know if Emma was born at the time or not, can't remember, but I remember driving up there, and I just remember saying this. I said, you know, we're getting to that point in time in our life where this starts happening more frequently. You know, there's a point in time where you go through this life and and what is it? It seems like you tend more weddings than anything else, right? And, and more baby showers than anything else. And then you start getting to a point in time in your life where you start attending more funerals, more memorial services. And, uh, you know, the gravity of it. The gravity, the soberness of it. In Hebrews chapter 9, <clears throat> Hebrews chapter 9, <clears throat> It says, and as it is appointed in verse twenty-seven, Hebrews chapter nine, twenty-seven, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this the judgment. There's two things that we find escapable, inescapable in this life. Death. Now again, you know, people can get raptured out of here, and we understand that this happened in the past. We understand it's going to happen in the future. So we got that. We got. We got a concept of that. And praise the Lord, but there's only a small amount of those compared to the amount that have already passed away and the amount that will pass away. But one thing that is very clear is we know that there will be a judgment. And this matches, I mean, it just goes hand in hand as the puzzle piece fits together with right there with Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, where he says God's going to bring every secret thing into judgment. This is the mindset that we have to have. God is going to bring everything into judgment. Including the stuff that we've hid. Including the stuff that nobody knows about. Including the stuff that we don't want to talk about. God's going to bring it into judgment. Now again, you know, if you're saved, born again, child of God, praise the Lord. It says redeemed and paid in full. And your own name is in the Lamb's Book of Life. Praise the Lord for that. If not... It's a very different scenario at the end of Revelation chapter 20. Very different scenario. But what we find here is we find that God says, you know, it's appointed unto men once to die. You know, we're going to die. In, if the Lord doesn't come back, we, we are going to pass away in this flesh. It happens. It happens. You know, I, I think that's one of the things that really, really shook a lot of people to the core with, with, with COVID coming out. Was, it was taking a lot of lives very quickly. It was taking a lot of lives very quickly. It showed a lot of flaws in our system. It shows how, how, how world economies, even though built up and protected and, and, and everything else that's out there and this, you know, kind of reliance on western medicine and, and how that's going to come in and save the day and it's better than everything else. And what do we find out? Our Western medicine doesn't, COVID just went, it just kind of laughed at it when like, ha, 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 watch this. And just moved right past everything. And we found that their own mortality became very evident very quickly. And it shook a lot of people to the core because a lot of people hadn't thought about death. They hadn't thought about death. I mean, even some of the stuff in 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 medicine in in healthcare today. I mean, you know, they're they're still trying to preserve life as long as they can. But we we, we get to this point where we realize that you know this flesh is going to stop working <laughs> again. We, we we had a conversation this morning talking about when do we know when we're getting old, and 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 I and I, I you know kind of made the the comment. Uh, of it's when something drops on the ground and you actually have the conversation within yourself, is it worth bending over and getting it? <laughs> or, 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 or one of the other uh, things that was mentioned is, is when you do bend down, you, you're down there and you go, what else do I need to do while I'm down here? To clean things up or do I need to get this or that pen that I dropped that I said wasn't worth it before and now I'm down here because I have to tie my shoes, I better go down there and get that while I can you have those you have those debates inside you and what happens we age we age man we age <laughs> you know you, 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 again you wake up and you see you got a new pain you wake up and you got something new's going on and you're sitting there going and, and, and you don't want to go to the doctor because you don't want to be the guy that's labeled the hypochondriac but also at the same time, you're just sitting there kind of, you know, you do your own thing with uh, Google and WebMD, and you immediately have your uh, doctorate and, uh you know, all eight years of medical school down in like three seconds as you research it, and you read the horrors, and then you go through and you go, oh, man, I have cancer. No, 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 you've got poison ivy rash. That's it. You're fine. <laughs> but... We, you know, we go through all of this in, in, in the purpose of trying to keep ourselves alive and and trying to, to to continue this life. But what we know is is that just it just doesn't it just doesn't stop death. While victory over death has been won by Jesus Christ rising from the dead, the final part of it hasn't been won at this point yet. Now when we raise with uh, with our resurrected bodies and we have that and uh uh and uh, we we we're, we're there and uh we we have a body that's like him when he was uh, was resurrected we'll praise God for that uh, then we've really conquered death through him and through him alone mankind can't do that mankind wants to try to achieve that but they're never going to so as we go back over there to, to, to the book of Ecclesiastes in verse 2, uh, he makes it very clear. He says uh, uh, that this is the end of all men. This is the end of all men. What is that? Death. The house of mourning. This is the end of all men. And what happens is, is somebody that is wise is going to be somebody that comes along and says, you know what, I'm actually going to start thinking about this. Now, the wise person, or excuse me, the foolish person has said in their heart, there is no God, and they don't care about the afterlife. They don't think an afterlife exists. But the fact is, is there is one, and it's talked about frequently in Scripture. But what we find is that the wise man will come along and he will lay it up in his heart. You know what that means? he realizes that at some point in time, he is going to pass away from this life. As he sees others around him in that house of mourning, that whole concept is is that it would draw him nearer to God. What typically happens in the house of feasting is there is a moving away from God. Let me show you this. Go to the book of Job. Go to the book of Job. <clears throat> you know, Job has this... uh <clears throat> This mentality where he was very concerned um, about his children, what his children did. <coughs> and uh <coughs> and we see here um in uh <coughs> in, in in Job's mentality, and I want you to notice this, uh he was very concerned with death. This is in verse one of Job 1, and there was a man in the uh, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. This is exactly what we're talking about over in the book of Ecclesiastes. And there were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance was also 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household, so that this man was the greatest of all men in of the East. This guy was rich. But he loved the Lord. That stuff never got in the way. Now look at what happens here. It says his sons went and feasted in their houses every one uh, his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. They're having such a good time in this life by the things that have been provided for them in each one of their houses. They just rotate through, well, who are we having, whose house are we at today to go have a, a, you know, dinner and, and have a feast? Now look at this in verse five, and it says, And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about, that Job sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings unto the uh, uh, according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Job continually. He's offering sacrifices for his children, not even his own sin. But for something that, that may be, if you will, a bit of an assumption here, saying, Hey, maybe they did sin, I I, I want to make sure that I cover that for them and I take care of that for them. This This is how concerned he was about this. Because he understood that at some point in time that people, when they get into that mindset and they get into the, 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 those blessing mindsets, that what happens is they get to, to the point of where they're saying, hey, you know, I've been blessed, you know, uh, the conversation with that, that rich man over there, soul, thou hast, you know, much things. What are we going to do with all these things? Well, we're getting more things. We need to build bigger barns. And God says, thou fool, thy soul will be required of thee tonight. So we find very clearly that there's this 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 matter of the end approaching. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, and this was back in the 1800s when we would think about, you know, things being on fire for God. I mean, here he was running a church of 6,000 people and you know he's 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 starting uh ministries to 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 go and send uh, uh young uh, young men out into uh the mission field and uh to start churches and to take over churches and to preach the gospel to do what is right and he's got some great books there's a great book called lectures to my students and I tell you if you're ever interested in what the work of the ministry is about go get that book it's a hard read it's a hard read it was a very convicting read, too. But one thing he said is, as he looked around on, on, on the people, and he looked around at his congregation, and he looked around on the churches in the world, he said this. He said, I am convinced that men and women that are believers truly do not believe God's word. He said, because if they did, they would believe that God could come back at any moment in time and that would remove them from their sin. How awkward would it be as you're right in the middle of committing a sin, Jesus Christ shows up? The trumpet sounds, and all of a sudden as you're robbing the liquor store, the trumpet sounds and you're like, oh man. You're caught up in the air, And Christ says, oh, what were you doing? (laughs) That would be a bit of an awkward conversation. That would be a bit of a troubling thing. But what we realize is is that Charles Spurgeon said, you know, if people truly believed what God said and truly believed how sinful sin is and how disgusting sin is and how God views it, people would behave very differently according to the Word of God so the same thing becomes true when it comes to this issue of death. You know, Job was concerned about his children. He didn't want any of them uh, having aught with God. So he would try to step in as some sort of, a, if you will, intermediary. And what we find here is, is as God's saying this over here, that, that, that this is the end of all men, that death and the living will lay it to his heart. He's saying, you know what happens? Somebody that is wise and somebody that is truly living a life with that desire for a good name is going to make decisions based on when they die, what account is being told. Turn over the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 90. Psalms chapter 90. Psalms chapter 90 is uh, um, what is often referred to as the prayer of Moses. So this is one of the Psalms that David didn't write, but Moses wrote it. And it's found here in Psalm chapter 90. And he goes through and he starts talking about all of these things uh, that happens. <clears throat> and he talks about this here, uh, um, in uh, <clears throat> and, uh, just to kind of think about this. He says in verse 4, he says, For a thousand years in thy sight are as but yesterday, when it is past as a watch in the night. So this lines up with what uh, Peter says, a day is a thousand years and a thousand years is a day to God. When you are not bound by time, time makes no difference. Time is not even a factor in your consideration. Time doesn't even fit into the equation. So here he says, uh, thou carriest them away uh, as with a flood. They are as, uh, as asleep in the morning. They are like grass which groweth up in the morning and flourisheth and groweth up. In the evening is cut down and withereth. Uh, um, today, Mike and Silas came over and grabbed some branches from my backyard and Silas was looking at my backyard and he's like, pastor, you want me to mow it? And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> I want you to cut this grass down. Cause you know, the rainy season has come and guess what happens with the rainy season? Our grass grows and it grows fast and it grows tall. I mean, he's going to need, he, you might actually, I have to get Jake's tractor to go over there and mow some of that stuff down. <laughs> But, you know, it, what happens? It gets cut down. You know, there it is in the morning, and it's, you know, flying in the breeze, and it's all happy, and the rabbits are coming along, you know, selectively picking each blade of grass, and then here comes Silas, <laughs> mows it down. <laughs> That's our life, by the way. That's what happens. There one minute and gone the next as the lawnmower rolls over us. That is an interesting. You talked about how the grass is cut down. They mowed grass back then. Oh, that's interesting. Anyways, <laughs> it says it's cut down and withereth. You know what happens when the grass is cut down? It leaves those little clumps that the dogs like to go and eat. But you don't want them to eat it because then they leave some nasty little surprises for you in the floor. Because it comes back up. And what happens? It withers away. It dies. It's cut down and it just turns into drying. It becomes a fire hazard if there's a lot of it. As you go down here a little bit further, uh, he says in verse 7, he says, For we are consumed by thy anger and thy wrath. We are troubled. Thou set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins, in the light of thine countenance. He's talking about judgment. You're cut down, and now you're standing in front of God. and God sees everything that you've ever done. And God's now putting it before you. You ever been caught doing something, and then somebody sits there and says, Would you like to explain yourself? And you would know, it's at this point in time that you automatically become a constitutionalist and a constitutional lawyer. I plead the fifth. (laughs) I'm not going to incriminate myself. Well, it doesn't work with God. U.S. Constitution has no bearing on God's judgment, okay? It's not a divine document. We we self-incriminate. And you will have to give an answer. But of course, he also says, every mouth will be stopped. So there is no answer for sin. There's no justification. And he says, in verse 9, he says, For all our days are passed away in thy wrath, and we spend our years as a tale that is told. I remember the first time I read that verse when I was young. And I was thinking about it. We spend our years as a tale that is told. What's somebody going to say about our life? Let's say, you know, there's an angel as we, right over there, that sits there and records. Let's say he puts together your autobi- you know, your biography. It's not an autobiography, because we know if we did an autobiography, we would leave out certain key elements, right? <clears throat> Anything that would be convicting or or, or go against us. But what tale would be told of our life? I tell you this, you know, what's absolutely fantastic about it is, is that, you, you know, you get to somebody say like Ken Stewart, and it says that he was born on December 3rd, 1973, and uh, he trusted Christ as his savior on such and such date. And from this point forward, he lived for the Lord. I'd love to say that I did that in every single area and every single aspect, but you know, I didn't, but praise God. My sins are forgiven and they're blotted out. My transgressions are washed away as scripture clearly says, thank God for that. But I'll tell you this, at one point in time, when we looked at, look at our life, what type of book would it be? Would it be a mystery? Would it be a horror (laughs) novel? Would it be one that would be banned from schools? Would it be one that, uh, we want to take out back and burn? Most of us would opt for that. (laughs) I want all copies and I want all copies burned immediately. But, but here he says, he says this is, this is the mentality. This is what we have to think about. This is what, this is what a person is that lays it to heart when they think about the house of mourning. You don't think this way when you're having a good time. When you're having a good time, sometimes isn't a lot of sobriety involved. You know, there you are, you're having a party and so on and so forth, and in comes the guy that you know is going to bring, you know, the soberness in. Bring everything to, you know, we often like to call them the killjoy, right? But we have to keep this mindset. It'll keep you from sin, okay? That's the important part. This is the important part. In verse 10, it says, the days of our years are three score and ten. He says, you got 70 years. You got 70 years. Now, that's obviously a lot less than Methuselah had by about 900 nine hundred years. But you understand what I'm saying here is, is if we've got 70 years of our life, and, and some people live way past that, and praise the Lord for it. But seventy years—what are you going to do with seventy years? What are you going to do with seventy years? And if by reason of strength they be fourscore years, yet it is uh, yet it is the, uh, their strength, uh, strength, labor, and sorrow. Yet it is their strength, labor, and sorrow. Now it's interesting. He says, if you extend past it, there's going to be some sorrow. Now, this is exactly what we're talking about here. This sorrow mentality is one that a lot of people don't want to talk about and they want to avoid. He says, for it is soon cut off and we fly away. Take a look in verse 11. He says, who knoweth the power of thine anger, even according to thy fear, so is thy wrath. And here's what he says in verse 12. I read all of that to get to verse 12. So teach us to number our days, that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. You know, we should we should really kind of take a look at that and say, Okay, uh I I'm how many years old? How many years do I have left? How many years do I have left? I I I turned forty nine this year in December. I just turned forty eight. Twenty one years left. What am I going to do with 21 years? What tale is going to be told in those 21 years? Am I going to live it for the Lord, or am I going to do something different? Am I going to live it for myself? Am I going to party, party, party all the time? Or am I going to keep in mind that at some point in time, I will, too, stand in judgment just like everyone else? And I keep that in mind. I keep that in mind. I want to glory in the day of death that I have fought the good fight. I have kept the faith. I have finished my course, as Paul says. And here he says that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. Every single day, you should be desiring to know wisdom. Now, wisdom is personified in the book of Proverbs, in verse uh, chapter 8 specifically. The fool or if if you will, the foolish woman that is is personified over there in in chapter 7 and the foolish man, those things are obviously contrary to the the, the personification of wisdom and what she brings to the table in chapter 8 of Proverbs and throughout the chapter, or throughout the book, I should say. And the same here. And he says that when somebody says, uh, when uh, Solomon is saying here, the living shall lay it to his heart, he is keeping that in mind. He's keeping that in mind. He's keeping that sobriety in mind that is told that we should have as a believer over there in, 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 uh, with, uh, with Paul talking to Timothy, with Paul talking to Titus. We should be sober. We should realize that death is a very real thing. It's going to happen to everybody. At some point in time, every person is going to stand in front of God. And that's either going to terrify you because you're looking at him as God that's going to judge you in your sins, or you're looking at him as your Savior, and you're happy to be there so the day of your death would be joyous. It would be far better. It would be far better. Now, now, go back over there to, to, to Ecclesiastes chapter 7, and I want you to see something here. We're just going to kind of broach this subject just a little bit. And he he talks about this in verse 7, where he talks about sorrow, in verse 3, is better than laughter. For by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Now, we all know the verse, a merry heart doeth good like a medicine, right? We know that. We know that one. We love that one. And we use it. Sometimes out of context, (laughs) but we use it, right? Right? And we think that that's the best thing. God just said sorrow is better than laughter. Now that goes against everything that the world teaches you. That goes against everything that we think about. That goes against what many people's pursuit of life is. But that's only because they don't know what sorrow does. They don't understand the purpose of sorrow. They don't understand that the purpose of sorrow is solely meant to bring you closer to God. So what do they try to do? They try to avoid sorrow at all costs. They they will use every method under the sun to try to avoid being sad. But the fact is, is God says, sorrow's a good thing. Now that flies in the face of all psychology. Modern psychology teaches us that depression is bad. Now as somebody that at one point in time in my life was depressed to the point of despair and suicidal thought, I will tell you this. It's not a fun place to be. But when it's reached that point, God has been excluded in the thought process. If God is included in the sorrow thought process, it's a very different kind of sorrow. It's not worldly sorrow. It's godly sorrow. It's godly sorrow. Turn over to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians. Man, you know, it's in our founding documents. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, right? Right? We, we talk about it as something that we're supposed to have. <clears throat> and here in this passage, <clears throat> in verse, uh, verse 6 of Second Corinthians chapter 7, it says, Nevertheless, God, that comfort, those that are cast down, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So God used Titus to come and begin to relay what had happened over there in Corinth. And it says not by his coming only, because they liked Titus. Titus was a good guy but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you. Titus took the comfort that he had from the Corinthians, and he brought that to Paul. Yeah, comfort is portable. Comfort is shareable. That's an amazing thing to think about. And here he says, when he told us your earnest desire, now look at what he says, your mourning. Your mourning your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoice the more. You know what? Let let, let me be clear with this. When we start talking about mourning, we're not necessarily talking about death in the form of physical death, but we're talking about mourning over the fact that we've sinned. It is better to mourn over sin than to rejoice in it in feasting. Puts a whole different perspective on that verse now, doesn't it? What were they mourning about? They were mourning about the fact that Paul had to write him a very aggressive letter. Saying, if I got to come over there and slap you around, I will. <laughs> I, I'm putting that in the Ken Stewart version, okay? <laughs> he, very, he, gets, he gets right up there in their face and says, you know, what you're doing is wrong. He says, you're all divided. You're all at each other's throats. Nobody has charity, which is what you're supposed to be looking for. You're all sitting there boasting about what God has given you as if you're some great thing. And he's like, you're not. So stop it. And here he is in this next verse uh, uh, where he says in verse 8, he says, For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent. Though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a, uh, <coughs> for a season. That sorrow was for a season, as I've always said. Sorrow is a transient thing. It's when we use it incorrectly that we have problems. You know, you know what makes a good name? Somebody that admits that they're wrong, repents, and seeks forgiveness. This is what he's talking about over there in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. He truly mourns when he's offended somebody. He truly mourns over the break of the relationship, especially with God. Just like, just like David did in Psalm chapter 51. And, and he talks about it over there in Psalm chapter 32, Psalm chapter 38, and he's talking about how it feels like a rottenness in his bones, and he's just physically sick because of it, because of sin and the sin that he's committed. That's a house of mourning. That's a house of mourning. Here he is making them sorry, and, and, and he says, you know, obviously he did this with this letter to get to the point across that what they were allowing in there was sin, and it ought not be. In verse 9, he says, Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance. Sorrowed to repentance. Now again, what is repentance? Repentance is turning from something to something else. There's always two objects in repentance. There is something you are turning from and something you are turning towards. Not all repentance involves sin because it says God repented of the evil he was going to do to Nineveh. Now, he wasn't going to do sin to them. He was going to judge them. To them, that was very evil because it would have done a lot of harm. It would have been a whole another Sodom and Gomorrah. But they repented and God repented. Now, they were repenting of sin. God wasn't repenting of sin. He saw their sorrow and he said, okay. I'm not going to do this. Instead of destroying you, I'm going to let you live. That's well, an amazing thing to think about. Now, when we're talking about here in this situation, what did they do? They turned from their sin and they turned to God. That's what repentance is about. It's making a purposeful decision. It's not one of those, uh, I'm, uh, I guess I'm sorry because I had to say I was Sorry. That's No, that's not repentance, okay? As a matter of fact, that's sinful in itself. But what we have here is we have a true thing that happened with the Corinthian church where they said, no, you know what? We're going to actually repent. We're going to turn to God, and we're going to turn away from the sin. And this is why he rejoiced, not in the fact that he made them sorry. Some people like to just go around and make people sorry, and if you will, bring a guilt trip. Don't be that person. That's just evil, All right? What you should do is you should rejoice when that person turns. That's the idea behind it. You don't want to guilt trip him into compliance. You want him to make a willing change of the heart. Because that's the, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's a conviction that he brings. And he says, for you were made sorry after a godly manner that you might have received uh, damage by us in nothing. A godly manner. You know, there is a sinful manner in which you can use sorrow. Same with anger, same with happiness, and same with fear. Same with, and this is what he's getting at. He's here, he says, for godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. You know what happens in that repentance? Is we turn away from those sinful things and what do we do? We turn to God. We turn to him. When you trusted Christ as your Savior, you turned away from yourself, and you said, I want forgiveness in Jesus Christ. I want the Lord. You made a decision. You made a conscious decision. You called upon his name. So when we begin to realize here what this is about, we realize how valuable sorrow is. This is what, what, what he's talking about. This is why Solomon, even you know, in his life, he realized he made some pretty big blunders. 700 wives and a 1,000 concubines or whatever it was, good grief. And what was it all for? The purpose of political gain to keep Israel's future secure. Oh, so let me get this straight, Solomon. You're wise, but you didn't trust God. Yeah. And here he is saying, look, you know what's best? Sorrow is always better than laughter. Why? Because take a look back over there at that passage and what we find in verse 3, and we'll we'll close with this. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. Not only is there a healing that occurs, but there's something else. It's now in an improved state. When you get sin out of your life, you're far better than you are with it in it. If the sin is still in your life, you're in a miserable condition. Sin removed from your life, you're in a better condition. This is why every pastor, every evangelist, every preacher, every missionary, every Sunday school teacher, every junior church teacher, every youth pastor, every assistant pastor, anybody that has any uh, instruction in the knowledge of God says, get the sin out. Why? You'll be far better for it. And it would be better to sit there and be sorrowful as you get sin out of your life than to sit there and laugh and laugh at God and laugh at sin and laugh away with the world, your life. And these are pretty dark sayings that Solomon's talking about here. But they have, have, I mean, the the, the elements of truth that are ingrained in these are, are, are such valuable treasures. Especially when we start thinking about that mindset, the world says, "Hey, no, you you can't be depressed, so we need we, we need to get you out of that depression as soon as possible. No, use the depression the right way. start analyzing, Lord, search me and try me. What is causing this depression? Is it sin in my life? Is there something I need to address? Is it a p- temporary period of mourning?" Am I taking my sorrow and using it for something sinful? Is it the sorrow of the world? Am I separating a relationship, causing the death of relationship with the brothers and sisters in Christ and you, Lord? What am I doing with it? That's the first place you start when you start talking about depression. And that's where we have to begin. The next few verses, he continues to go on with this, and he talks about the way of the fool. And the way of the fool is somebody that just laughs it away not a care in the world, living for themselves. And we'll find out more about that, Lord Winley, really next week. But let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the time. And Lord, again, I'm just very grateful for what we find here in this book of Ecclesiastes. And Lord, as, as, um, as it's been said, this is a very grounding book. Uh, this will bring sobriety really quick to the mind and to the heart. And, Lord, I am so thankful for it. I'm thankful for the challenge that it puts in my life, the challenge that it puts in each believer's life, as we sit here and think about it, as we meditate, as we consider our life. And, Lord, sometimes people think that that laughing through the rest of their life is always better. But there is a sobriety that is involved. There is a sorrow that takes place. And, Lord, that sorrow is necessary. So that we will know more and more about you, that we will draw nearer and nearer to you, closer and closer. And Lord, I know you're in us and and we're in you, but Lord, in that relationship where we trust you more every single day, where we listen to your Holy Spirit every single day, where we yield to you every single day, where we're obedient to your word every single day. And Lord, may that be the goal for our life to please you, and to honor you with all that we've received. pray you take us home safely tonight and bring us back safely again on Tuesday for basic and Wednesday for our midweek service. Lord, again, I just thank you for all that you've done for us this day. And I ask and pray it in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.